You are listening to Career Up Now Socially Distanced Close-Ups. Let's jump in on the conversation. When you first started out, did you envision yourself in the kinds of positions you are in now? Or did you have a different sense of your career path? When I was young, like maybe three to seven, I wanted to be a like veterinarian. That was cute. But by the time I was seven, I realized how hard veterinarians have to work. And I realized that once I grow up, I want to be retired. Uh, So that's like what I wrote on all my papers. Like, what do you do when you want to grow up? I wanted to be retired. At some point, I won't be able to enjoy like travel, retired life, do whatever I want. And then I'll like go back and work and earn back some of the money that I owe for all my (laughs) enjoyment time. Truthfully, I've always like been very into entrepreneurship. My mom likes to joke that like my first time being an entrepreneur was when I was like five. They took me to the Boston Marathon, which was like right next to my house. And by the time I was six, I was like making lemonade to sell. And by the time I was like eight, I would go without my parents, buy 40 cans of soda and sell them for a 60% markup. So I kind of had this kind of go around. I'm a big I guess I feel very fortunate to be have been in have the educational, financial and emotional support to be able to do this. But I'm a big preacher of find something that you're passionate about, go do that thing that you're passionate about. And if you do it long enough, someone will pay you for it. There's enough money in the world if you've been. uh, So my original consulting, my job, I basically said people are overpaid to go to conferences. You pay a salary, you pay their health insurance, you pay their flights, you pay their fancy hotel. I basically said, I like traveling. So I just said, I'm going to travel around the world to conferences. Last year, I went to about 40 conferences in 25 different countries. I'm going to pay everything out of pocket. But instead of hiring a full-time biz dev and paying all this stuff, four or five companies can pay me a very small retainer and I'll get them leads, give them a chart of all the partners, have some follow-up conversations, share their deck with people and bring back insights. The same that their person would do just for like one-tenth of the cost. Worked for them, worked for me. But yeah, I'm very, you know, find something that you're passionate about, do it. I saw that you're a doctor. I'm sure you're very passionate about your work. And my, both my parents are doctors. And I guess I kind of grew up with this idea of if you like something, whether it's being an eye doctor, heart doctor, traveling and going to conferences, eventually someone will pay you if you just keep doing it and do a good job. That's a good attitude and that's a good attitude and a good lesson for the young people. Could you share your journey toward this position, you know, in in a little more detail? You gave us a little smattering of your childhood and then you you went on to what you've been doing the last few years, but kind of what other steps were were there along the way? Yeah, so I guess I have a little bit of a uh, alternative childhood growing up story. Uh, So I grew up in Boston, normal, let's say like conservative Jewish Boston family, went to Schechter. I wanted to ask you if you have any relation to that. Yeah. Uh, Went to Schechter, Boston. Uh, I went on try. I was super into Israel. Ramah has a high school program. I was at a private Jewish school in Boston. I dropped out of my private Jewish school to go to public school because public school students were allowed to go on try to Israel in 10th grade, and my Jewish school only went in 11th grade. And I was like, I don't want to wait. So I did a semester abroad in 10th grade. Uh, Family was very supportive. And then when I came back in 11th grade, because of all these random schools I had gone to, 
uh, worked out that I had enough credits to just not do 12th grade. So after 11th grade, I decided I wanted to move to Israel. And full disclosure, I had two very serious options ahead of me. I one side, I wanted to go make the first ever uh, industrial size marijuana butter factory in Colorado. This was a little over 10 years ago. I could have been really, really rich. Uh, I didn't do that. <laughs> Instead, I moved to Israel. Uh, I made Aliyah, uh, spent a year at Ben Gurion University. Once I turned 18, grew Nefesh Benefesh and Garin Sabar, uh, became a citizen in Israel, was drafted to the army where I served in Kogat as an NGO. Uh, most of my work was working as a liaison in Gaza with the United Nations for humanitarian aid. Quite a rewarding experience, in my opinion. Finished there, started IDC, Computer Science and Entrepreneurship. And I guess right before I was going to finish school, I was kind of similar to now as like consulting and working on a startup or working in a company that was in the process of raising funds. And this one of the startups that I was consulting for got some funding from a VC in California. It was cool for me to go back to America. I never stayed in San Francisco before, but for the two Israeli partners with me, it's like, dream come true, get money and go to America. Uh, so that was very exciting to like go with them to follow their dream. Like many startups, it didn't work out for a variety of reasons that we can kind of maybe go into on later on or another call. But that's when I kind of had this epiphany about a year plus ago, hey, my company couldn't afford to hire all these people to go to conferences. Other companies could afford it, but it's a waste of their money. Why don't I just do it because I enjoy it and it's cost effective. All right. So that's, that's how you came to your, your current niche. What new challenges or opportunities does the pandemic present for you and for this travel-based conference uh, consulting model? Great question. I mean, I guess the model doesn't really exist anymore because there are no conferences. Um, they have online conferences. That was one of my first Corona hustles. Like the online conference scene is amazing. And my first thing I wanted to do when it happened was create a white labeled conference solution. You want to have a medical society conference that usually you guys all fly out for the board of directors of some journal, whatever do it online, take our platform, pay $5 a users. You get different rooms, you get one-on-one -on -one chats, you get all this stuff. Online conferences kind of suck. Like I haven't, like I've been to 10 in the last month, maybe made one interesting connection, heard the same 40 people, especially the blockchain space is really small. It's like, to some extent, conferencing is like going to summer camp or like going backpacking. It's like all these people who know each other get together every one to two months and hang out and talk shop. But it's not the same online. You're not going to like be at an after party at a VITP table with this guy who happens to invite over the president of a company that you've always wanted to talk to. You have to have like formal meetings and like there's no real way to communicate and you're in the chat with 200 other people. So there's a lot of work to go on the online conferencing, but I think we'll have some like VR stuff and some other stuff in five in like three to five years from now, that whole online conferencing interaction digitally will be quite an interesting space for people who get in early. Also medical supplies. Uh, my job was to fly around the world and meet people. So 
Uh, I have some contacts in Vietnam, Taiwan, Europe, US, Israel, who are like, hey, you know everyone, by the way, we have a contact to the 3M factory. We have a contact to ventilator suppliers. We work with this government who doesn't have enough masks and need access to the Vietnamese factory suppliers. So I don't know if any of the introductions partnerships I have set up have like come to fruition, but it's a field that I never have or kind of thought I would get involved with. But again, because of my network, people just kind of gravitated and you asked me about this, you asked me about this, they asked me, my job is just to introduce people and let them try well, to You sound out. like a global networker uh, at yeah, a, that's, a large that's, scale. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. um, can you name a teaching moment for you, whether that might have been a mistake or a failure or something that made you reassess where you were going? Like during October until February of this year, so I just spent four months uh, with no clients. Christmas time, New Year's, there's no conferences. January, people are still getting their stuff together. I happened to finish up two contracts in October. Then Corona happened and there are no conferences to even sell my services anymore. I don't ever like to look at necessarily these things as a mistake, um, but more good learning lessons like you mentioned. So kind of figuring out, right, how, if you're a consultant in your entire monetary de dependence relies on one or two companies, it puts you at tri quite a risky place, right? You're not an employee. You could have your work terminated tomorrow and not get unemployment benefits or other things that other people have the rights to, right? They're not giving you money for your pension. So I think one of the things I've learned also is let's say the niche sweet spot is like three or like four to six clients, right? six and more you kind of become you can't really deep dive into six products six technologies six customer bases six partnership regions open up emails for them be on their weekly calls to know what's going on on the other hand less than four you put yourself at kind of a risk of exposure to kind of being too reliant on one or two companies that if they don't need your services next month they can become financially a financial burden that not everyone can take for so long is blockchain a big part of what you do or what you study yeah, yeah i only work in the blockchain space for the most part can uh, you explain that to those that might be listening and, and don't understand as much about the blockchain sure. mechanisms yeah yeah um, i don't know that i'll be able to get everything in there on this call but I guess in general, one of the reasons I got into blockchain is that there is a big focus on decentralization of power and mistrust for the current, let's say, financial system. So, I mean, just a, this is a personal story that uh, I know someone through the blockchain conferencing space for like a minor discretion six years ago uh, for like poaching a client was sued in Singapore for like, I don't know, stealing a client, conflict of interest, whatever. The case was settled three years ago, but the person reopened a civil court case three years later. The person who I know was never told about that and was traveling for a conference to Singapore and arrested at the border saying, you never showed up for three years to your court date. When I called uh, Fidelity Bank, they told me, no, we're not sending money to your friend in Singapore who needs bail. 
And I'm like, what do you mean? I have cash. It's my money. No, you have to go. I went through a three hour interview about the person, why they're there, what happened, how I know them, which is really uncomfortable. And to be honest, none of their business through blockchain, Bitcoin, and like true financial freedom, I can send them half a Bitcoin. 20 seconds later, they received the money, paid their bail, went back to their country and used their own money to pay me back. That's financial freedom. I'm, I'm a spoiled Israeli American who almost has that. And when I can't take my friends out of jail, it's like kind of annoying. People in China, people in Iran, people in Gaza don't have that financial freedom. And I, uh, I just believe in financial freedom for everyone everywhere. And that is one of the kind of base uh, layer things that the technology allows us to do. But from an essence, blockchain is just a, let's say, second layer on top of the internet that says instead of a central group coordinating what's going on in the framework or in the network, I don't trust David, David doesn't trust me, and the two of us don't trust anyone watching this call. But if all 20 of us keep a list of the information and none of us trust each other, then if we take the average or the most like the random person from the group, there's no reason to lie because five minutes later, we're gonna realize that you're a bad actor and tried to lie because some other random person will be pulled and it's not some central authority that can block your bank account, change the numbers, et cetera. Comes again with risks and advantages. Can this be used with relation, in relation to non-financial issues like uh, the media, for example, people are concerned about the media constricting what people are saying, uh, you know, freedom of expression. Uh, how, how, how could it relate to that or does it? Yeah, that's a great question. Blockchain is internet in 1990s. We have no idea the potential technological ramifications. Doing this video Zoom call talking about white labeled online conference that I wouldn't even, people wouldn't even know how to begin that conversation in the 90s. Uh, that's the technological development stage of the blockchain. Because we have the internet, because we have social media, maybe the world hype around it is there. Specifically for social media, um, I have a few companies that I am into and interested in or speak to on a regular basis that basically do social media that is, again, non-censored. It's run by this open network. And you reward content creators by giving them these tokens that are created for rewards points within the network. In fact, uh, if you know Reddit, which is quite a popular, let's say, subculture group of people talking forum online, um, Reddit also has their own rewards points that they're launching last a few months ago or launching in the midst of launching now to, so that you can tip people for good content, reward people, etc. Um, so yeah, social media could be an interesting one. Financial transactions is obviously very hot. Uh, I work with a company that does AI and machine learning sharing. So from the medical field, you might know you guys are doing research on big data samples where you have 100,000 participants, but the hospitals in Boston have 10 hospitals that also have 10,000 participants and you don't trust them. They don't trust each other. And none of them trust you. So why, how do you work together? How do you share information? So again, if you have this 
public database. Everyone knows what's going on. Everyone shares the system. If we can upload our user data, but only publish um, certain things that can be analyzed, maybe we could find cures for cancer and vaccines for corona in one-tenth of the time because we're working together instead of against each other. Well, it's, very, um, it's very interesting, and you obviously you presented it in, in, a, in a very um, fascinating way, and, you, and as you said, you go to a lot of conferences on this. You get to hear a lot of smart people talking about this on a regular basis. So most of us don't get much exposure to it yet, but we, you know, obviously we know about uh, Bitcoin, but we don't know as much about the technology and um, the potential. I'm going to ask you two more questions and then we can chat for a few minutes if you want or whatever, but how has mentorship enriched your life? Have you had an experience with a mentor that's been beneficial to you? If it's no, that's okay too. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think about some like specific mentorship experience. I guess a lot of my work has been more entrepreneurship focused. So it's less that I'm like in some organization and have a mentee under me kind of thing. But I think a lot of kind of younger entrepreneurs can come to me or do come to me uh, to discuss their ideas, what they think is good or good or not a good idea. Uh, and I really enjoy kind of giving them feedback. Uh, I'm a consultant, so my feedback is usually constructive criticism with an emphasis on the criticism. I'm but flipping that, flipping that, have you had people who've met, have been your mentor? I mean, maybe mm -hmm. from the VC culture in Israel, there's quite a few people who've been doing it for a long time or, or anyone else. Yeah, I've had kind of many people along my path that kind of have been inspirational. Even the current company where I'm a late stage co-founder, uh, I consulted for two years. I never joined any company because nothing inspired me. But, you know, the CEO, Mark from Fuse, uh, and the work that he's done and his open source social impact uh, ideology is something that I find very inspirational and one of the reasons I kind of joined this company. Uh, and not to be too, like, sappy, but my grandpa uh, passed away four or five years ago. Uh, he was 97. He died in the house he grew up in, in West Virginia, in his own bed. And he went to work as an eye doctor until two years before he died. So even when he was 95, he was driving himself to the office, which he had for the last 60 years. And when he passed away, we had stories about him like, I'm 68, your dad's been my doctor since I was eight, that's 60 years he can't go, he can't retire. Like you can't do that to me. And just kind of, yeah. that's kind of what I kind of, we started at is kind of find something you're passionate about, do it for a long time. It's not even necessarily about earning a lot of money, but you create this network of people who are dependent on you, who appreciate kind of the things you do. Um, so I hope to kind of be that person for the entrepreneurial mindset. What town in West Virginia was he in? Bluefield. Okay, small town. Yeah. Do you have a core value that guides your life? You mentioned a few things that are important to you, but do you have a core value? A core value, that's a tough one. But I mean, you, you said it, you kind of touched on it earlier. A big thing for me is like 
not crying over spilled milk. There's no failure. There's no mistakes. There's good learning lessons. I'm a tough boss. I make people cry. I fire people. But when people are like crying, I'm like, stop crying. You still do a really good job in the company. Learn from this lesson, smile, pick your chin up and go forward. And the people who make it and can take the criticism and me who's had hundreds of like learning lessons, some people would call them failures. It's easy to get down, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur. I get told my idea is stupid or investors don't want it. And it could be months or years before someone understands or thinks what you're doing is interesting. So yeah, I mean, don't look back. Think about what made you upset or what hurt you. And everything's a good learning lesson, kind of the good and the bad. Don't get caught up on the small things.